All right, uh, Romans 3, and I want to pick it up at verse 19 here. Uh, so just, just to lay the foundation that Paul has laid. Uh, so here, if you look on the screen, uh, Romans 1, 18 to, 32, uh, to 3.20, we're not righteous by works. Then 3.21 to 4.25 is going to be addressing the issue the demonstration that acceptance with God comes through, uh, comes by the work of, of Jesus only, and it's received through faith. So these are the two issues that we'll be dealing with in 321 to 425. In the rest of chapter 3, we'll be looking at the work that Jesus has done to give us a right relationship with himself. And then in chapter 4, we'll be looking at what that faith looks like. Uh, first, the demonstration that it is by faith, and some discussion of that. And then, latterly, the, uh, the demonstration of this kind of faith in the life of Abraham. So, uh, this is where we're headed. Um, God has provided a way for us to relate to himself without law and through faith. And I made this proposal last week. Look at 319 and 20. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are in the law so that every mouth may be uh, stopped and all the world held guilty before God. Um, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified before him, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And I said to you last week, the knowledge of sin we usually read as being aware of what sin is. But that's not what Paul means. And I'll show you this as we go. Knowledge of sin is actually the experience of sin in Paul, uh, as, as I'll try to make the case later. It'll be next, some, next semester sometime <laughs> before we get there. That's in Romans 6 and 7. But uh, uh, if I can't have righteousness by works, but I must have righteousness, and God is declaring some people righteous, what kind of righteousness is it? Does that make sense to you? What does this righteousness look like? And so Paul starts this out, and we introduced this last time, verse uh, uh, 21. Your text reads something like, um, the righteousness of God is revealed apart from law. Yeah? That's a legitimate translation. It's not the only legitimate translation. This is one of our problems when we're dealing from one language to another. <laughs> uh, there are a variety of, uh, often a variety of ways of expressing things, and, and it's not absolutely clear, except from context, what you should do. So if I, if I read this, if I may just read it word for word as it comes in the text here. But now, without law, righteousness of God is revealed. Now, without law, that prepositional phrase, without law, could be adverbial, the way most of our translations read. It's, it's revealed without the law or apart from the law. That's adverbial. Or it could be adjectival. It could be the kind of righteousness that we have. Does that make sense to you? So if I say to you, uh, I want you to see a particular house, and you will say, What? <coughs> I want you to see this particular house, and you'll say, which, which house? I'll say the green one. Are you with me here? So green is an adjective. Prepositional phrases can be adjectives as well um, as adverbs. It goes both ways in Greek as, by the way, in English. Uh, uh, he's an in-house physician. All right. Yes? What's an in-house physician? Yeah, he's, he's, he's uh, pretty much uh, committed his his work as a physician to being within that group, in-house physician. Does that make sense to you? Right? That in-house is a prepositional phrase, but it's used in this case as an adjective modifying the word physician. Does this make sense to you? I, now, folks, I know you didn't come here for a, for a grammar lesson. <laughs> Uh, you thought you were through with grammar. Yes? 
But if you're a Bible student, you can't be through with grammar. If you're a Bible student, you have to study grammar. I, I, I'm sorry to tell you that. And I know it's painful. But the difference between what you did in school and what we're doing now is in school you were doing it for a grade. Now we're trying to understand the Word of God. We have a much higher purpose, <laughs> much nobler purpose. And so somehow you got to get, get past that grammar. I don't want to talk about grammar anymore. Yes? So... Um, so what does it mean? Yes, sir. I hesitate to ask this question. It is about grammar. I personally like the translation, not knowing Greek at all, that use uh, capitalization for deity in New King James is one of those. Okay? Then you, you know the pronouns when it says he and his capitalization yeah, yeah. and so forth in L-O-R-D yeah. and so forth. In 19, verse 19, 319, now we know that whatever the law, the law yeah. is a small l uh-huh. going down to down to uh, twenty one. At the end there, it says being witnesses witnessed by the law, capital L, yeah. and the prophets. So, I guess my question is, and I'm sorry if this is so basic, why the difference in that? Um, it's partly to distinguish what Paul means by the word law in the we two just, places. We discussed that last time. How do you define law? Yeah. And I never really got a good answer to that. Well. I think there's a difference between what we automatically, you know, instinctively understand as law versus yeah. what they do. Well, in verse 19, uh, See, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And if there's a verse 19, there's probably an 18. Yes? Uh, so what he's doing in verse 19 is summarizing the message of verses 10 to 18. Okay? But when you look at the marginal references, if, you, if your Bible has them, probably do, um, not one of those quotations comes from Moses. Uh, the first is from Ecclesiastes and Psalms. Uh, the second is from Psalms. That's verse 13. Verse, uh, the, the second half of verse 13 is from Psalms, a different psalm. Uh, verse 15 is from Isaiah and Proverbs. Verse 18 is from Psalms. Not one reference to Moses. So in that sense, the word law in verse 19 is a reference to the what we would call the whole Old Testament. Does that make sense to you? Um, so that the word law can refer to the books of Moses. And that's the point. What was that verse 20? 20, 21. Uh, yeah. Uh, when he contrasts the law and the prophets, this is a common way for first century Jews to refer to the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, which would be Moses, and all the rest of the writings. Um, So in the latter, in verse 21, he's referring to canonical scripture as a whole, and so your translation has a capital L there, whereas in verse 19, it has a lowercase l. But, But you have to understand, folks, first century Greek didn't use any capital letters at all. I'm sorry, that's not right. All they had was capital letters. I, mean, I, I just woke up and I'm feeling much better. <laughs> I've been away, but I'm back and I, I feel a whole lot better. Uh, they had nothing but capital letters, and so there was no way to distinguish capital and lowercase. They didn't have any spaces either. They didn't have any spaces either, which is even more interesting. Uh, but uh, uh, so this is entirely a, a translator's decision. When to when to use a capital? When to use yeah. a lowercase? So they just that's altogether a, a translator's decision. Our more modern translations, the ESV, for example, doesn't use capital letters for pronouns at all, uh, except for I. But for all other pronouns, it uses lowercase, even when referring to deity. Uh, so. Uh, 
these are. Do you know why that is? I mean, why? Uh, it's is a decision the group made, or yeah, modern English usage. Trying to save on ink or no, just, no. One. I heard that one. Well, no, you wouldn't save that much. Well, that's right. <laughs> uh, it's just a modern English usage. So, Strong uh, says that that word there for lock—that's used here, nomos. Mm-hmm. That it's, it has such a wide range. Oh yeah, it's, so, it's, so the context is everything. That's right. Context is always everything. So, and now verse twenty-one. Then back to this apart from law issue. I would argue, because of the relationship between chapters, chapter 3, 1 to 19, and chapter 3, 21, or 3 to, 1 to 20, and, and chapter 3, verses 21 and following, because of that relationship, he is contrasting the works righteousness that he has rejected with a different kind of righteousness, which he calls a without-law righteousness. In fact, the first word in, in, in Greek here is now. The second word is but. The third word is without. The fourth word is law. And the fifth word is righteousness. Didn't Jesus make a, a very clear distinction between two different types of righteousness? The, the righteousness of the Pharisees and those people and, and the real righteousness? Yeah, he did. Now Paul's going to explain it. Ah, perfect. Uh, one of my professors said, in a sense... The Gospels are the fundamental texts of the New Testament, and the Epistles are commentaries on the Gospels. Right? They're they're not taking Matthew one and doing a commentary in our traditional sense, but they're spelling out what Jesus meant, uh, what the Gospel writers meant, and putting it in a in a propositional rather than a narratival form instead of story. They're, they're, they're telling us outright. Story shows ideas. Epistle tells ideas. Yes, sir. Uh, back to your grammar. You said that the first word is now, the second word is but. Yes. The third is without law. Uh, our translation says but now as opposed to now but. Is mm-hmm. there any significance? English usage. Okay. Yeah, that's all. Uh, in English, I can't always represent the word order of Greek because word order, word order in Greek is not meaningless, but it is, uh, it's, it's quite meaningful. Uh, but we have in English a far more structured word order than Greek does. You see, that surprises me with your Dallas seminary degree because you know that one word was before the other. Yeah, no. yeah. So, so, but, but I was trying to make the point that without law righteousness occurs together before, uh, without law, righteousness of God is revealed, being testified by the law and the prophets. So I think what, what Paul is doing here is telling us not how the revelation of this righteousness came to be, because it's, it can be revealed without the law because it's revealed by the law. Does this make sense? Look at the verse. Uh, the righteousness of God is revealed being testified by the law. Yes? Yes? So it can't be revealed without the law if it's testified by the law. Right? Or it's, it's being used in a different way, not adverbially describing the way of revelation. It's being used adjectivally, telling us what kind of righteousness it is. So what kind of righteousness is this? Well, negatively, verse 21, it's a without law righteousness. If it's without law, then there's something else. What does law impose upon us? Rules and punishment and the obligation to obey. Yes? Right? So this is a righteousness that's not associated with a standard that imposes obedience. Are you with me here? Two rules. So... So now, so verse, yes, sir. And again, you said that you could take this apart two different ways. We're talking about this. But my reading says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Mm-hmm. What this translation is saying to me is that apart from the law is, is towards how it was manifest. That's right. And that's my argument, that that's not how that should be read. 
Because the latter part of the verse says it's testified by the law. So how is it revealed without the law, or by, by the law, if it's, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't get it out, if it is uh, revealed without the law, how can it be revealed without the law if it's testified by the law? So, so much better to read this. This is the new kind of righteousness. If I can't have a law righteousness, better have a different kind of righteousness. Does this make sense? And that's what Paul is going to be explaining essentially in the rest of the book. So, but now a without law righteousness is revealed, being testified by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There I have a problem grammatically. You have, through, I, I, am, I assume most of you have through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Where that word faith is used with a personal, with a, a person following it, faith of virtually everywhere it occurs. It's the faith practiced by the person whose name follows. Or faithfulness, because faith in Greek can mean either faith in the sense of believing somebody, or faithfulness in the sense of being loyal. Yes? So uh, a lot of folks are now going to the translation, but now the righteousness of God... uh, uh, I'm sorry... Uh, is revealed by the by the law and the pro- testified by the law and the pro- prophets, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. For there is no difference. This doesn't change anything significantly. What it does, though, is it shifts the idea. And I'm not, frankly, I I don't know which side to come down on on this. I don't know which is the better way to go. But if this is the way to go, the idea is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Folks, it's not even my faithfulness that enables this righteousness in my life. It's the faithfulness of Jesus. And that's what he's going to talk about in the succeeding verses here. Does this make sense? Yes. Yeah, right. that's, that's a good translation, faithfulness. Uh-huh. Strong say is a good Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, but the, the point is that these are these are options in various contexts, and so I don't know which is the better. The usage of the phrase typically goes with the faithfulness of, but there are a few places, and I think this is one where I should stay with the, the older approach that your translation has, through faith in Jesus Christ. And let me show you this. Uh, for there is no difference at the end of verse 22. For all have sinned and are coming short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is Christ, which is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as and we've got a problem here we'll talk about these a little bit more as we go through the uh, propitiation through faith in his blood so I have now the same word for faith that we translated faithfulness of before it's a legitimate thing to do. Same word can have different senses and different contexts. But here, surely we must read this through faith in his blood for the demonstration of his righteousness and so on. Uh, so are we to think of this as the faithfulness of Jesus or are we to think of this as faith in Jesus? There are other places where this comes out and, and we'll, be, we'll discuss it again. But the point I'm making, folks, is... I think sometimes folks who have been to seminary are pressed to be more definite than the text actually is. Uh, So that a native Greek reader might have heard both senses at work in the passage. Does this make sense to you? What are you thinking, brother? Uh, When when you hear a pun, you groan, yes? But how do you know it's a pun? The intention or or lack thereof, right? Because you understand both meanings. (laughs) You understand multiple meanings for a word, and you realize that that word is being used in in a sense that's that's, um, ambivalent. 
in the yeah the context that's right uh, so that's what's going on in all language every time a speaker speaks he may use a specific he's trying maybe maybe trying to use a word in a particularly um, definite sense in in the sciences for example there, there was an interesting dissertation I heard about years ago you, you're gonna you're gonna think really a dissertation on the use of the expression uh you know what they discovered uh is very common in the humanities and the soft sciences but it's almost never used in scientific speech because in scientific speech there is only one term and it's the only right term that fits in the context does this make sense to you? In the humanities, you have many uh, synonyms that you can draw from, and a uh, is a filler that's intended in English to express to the hearer, I've got a little more to say, I'm not finished yet. Uh, are you with me here? Uh, uh. <laughs> now you're going to hear every uh that I've used this, morning, this afternoon. Uh, so, but there's a thaw, and then there's a thaw. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the issue then is that an, a native speaker of, of first century Greek would have understood the possibilities for this word pistis faith, but might have plugged more than one in, and that's what's happening with puns, because there are more than one sense attributable to it within the statement. Does that make sense to you? So we may be trying to be more precise than, than Paul intended. Yes, sir. I've got a question in verse 20. Uh, on, uh, a friend of mine, his name is Stacey Tyson's book. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I know him. I don't have any, any truck with him. <laughs> he says, uh, it says, even the righteousness of, this is verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith, through the faith of Jesus Christ, uh, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. That that seems like it's very freeing for me, a sinner and a person who yeah. has, has lacks faith. Yeah, because it's not my faith that is based on; it's Christ. Yeah, and it's not faith in Christ either. It's I'm sorry, in His experience, it's not His faith; it's His faithfulness. So that that would be a crucial issue, and here it may be the point, but I'm not. I'm not utterly convinced. The arguments they've used don't don't convince me entirely. Uh, usage is critical, and I'm I'm impressed by that argument. But that doesn't mean it's the sole argument that can be brought to bear. Uh, so the faithfulness of Jesus—that's what he's going to be talking about here, very very soon. And so that that would be a legitimate way of reading it. But all of this is saying to us. It's based in the faithfulness of Jesus, and it's appropriated by us, by our faith in his faithfulness. We could never have the faith to save ourselves. Yes, absolutely. So verse uh, 23, all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Um, So let me move on here. Verses 21 to 23. Without law, through faith, righteousness revealed in God's uh, word is now, where did that come from? Is now available to all sinful believers. Um, In that context, uh, there are some basic things that we need to see. First of all, God gives righteousness without works. I don't have to be obedient to be righteous in God's eyes. That's astonishing to me. Secondly, God's, God gives righteousness by faith. Um, Philippians one twenty nine is a verse that you need to know. Jesus says at one point in the upper room discourse, apart from me you can do... Is that true? Nothing right. Nothing right. Nothing pleasing to God. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's 
So it's, it's nothing of, of consequence. In Philippians chapter 1, there's an unusual statement that most of us haven't paid much attention to because it doesn't fit our theology. Because my theology is obviously right and the Bible needs to agree with me. So Philippians 1.29, what's it say? Somebody read it. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What, what, is the, what does the word it has been granted mean? And who did the granting? I don't think that is given. Yes, it's a gift. It's actually the word charizo, uh, which means to, to freely give. So who did the giving? God did. Well, what did he give? The ability to believe. And? And suffer. And suffer. So... I don't even have faith except as a gift from God. Are you with me here? It's not my free will that got me in. It's God's gift of faith to me. Um, Who else could give such a gift? Yes? Um, the, the, The word that you read there, it has been given, is called a passive voice verb. In a passive verb, that's contrasted with an active verb. An active verb, the doer of the action is the subject of the verb. In a passive verb, um, the the direct object has become the subject. That is, the recipient of the action has become the subject of the verb. So the subject of the verb is, is two things in verse 29. Believing, and, and, and by the way, it's a really un- unusual expression. It doesn't happen very often in the New Testament, but it happens often enough to be significant. What, is, what has been given to us, what God has given to us, is believing in his name and suffering for his sake. The gifts are believing in his name and suffering for his sake. I like the one, I'm not sure about the other. Yeah. Donald Barnhouse, famous preacher of 10th Presbyterian, 10th Presbyterian, I think, in, in uh, Philadelphia back in the 40s and 50s, said, uh, sometimes I pray, God, I'm really thankful for the meat and the potatoes and the gravy. I'm not so, I'm not so thankful for the asparagus, but you say to give thanks in everything, so I'm thankful for the asparagus, but I'm, not, I'm uh, much more thankful for <laughs> the meat and the potatoes and the gravy. <laughs> I'm really thankful for the gift of believing. I'm not sure I'm really happy with the other gift. But there is no faith where there is no suffering. Okay? Simply, there is no faith where there is no suffering. Because faith only is exercisable when, when suffering comes. You, you get into the suffering and you say with Job... Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Does that make sense to you? Um, So back to Romans 3. Then faith itself is a gift from God. It is not my free act. For I am free in doing it. I'm doing exactly what I want to do when I trust God. Yes, sir. Would you equate the faith... The gift of salvation is given by God. Yes, but it's it's the it's the act of believing that is the gift. Just as the experience of suffering is the gift. So it's a they're parallel terms in that regard. So back to Romans three twenty three. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. So God gives faith, righteousness by faith, and third God gives righteousness to all believing sinners. Folks, I'm still a believing sinner. I think the Lord saved me um, 67 years ago. Pardon? No, I know that, but I was trying to think how to say it. I think the Lord saved me 67 years ago. 
if the Lord were to retract the Holy Spirit from me, I would be in worse shape than I was then. Yes? So I'm not, I am not personally better than I was 67 years ago. This is the work of God in me. Um, so, yes? Would you say that the gift of faith was something that God gave to Adam and we inherited that gift? Because Adam was the one that God created no, to be aware of it. No, no. no. So how the, Adam didn't have the I, I didn't have it in the garden. Okay. Uh, so, now let's talk about a few terms in this passage. Um, look, this in verse twenty-four. What is justification? Um, Deuteronomy twenty-five-one is a really good place to go see what justification means. Uh, and our, some of our translations really go in a direct in a direction that isn't Hebrew Hebrew at all. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty five one. Um, let's see, there it is. Um, if there is a contention between men, they shall come near to the to the court and they shall judge them. What does your text say after that? And condemn the wicked. Any other translation? Acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Yeah, that, that's exceedingly bad. Hebrew law, Israelite law, has no category of innocence. Let me talk to you about this. Much of our legal ter- ter- terminology is derived from Greek and Hebrew, Greek and Latin. The word innocent comes from a Latin word, innocheo. Nocheo means to be uh, harmful. And the in prefix is negating. So legitimate, illegitimate. Yes, same thing is happening with in no keto. There is no harm in this person. When we, when we have a court case in our day, and if we uh, describe the, um, the defendant as innocent, the verdict is innocent, what do we mean? He's a wonderful man, glorious, and is... No, as far as the case before the court is concerned, there is no harm in this man. That's kind of a meat and potatoes and gravy kind of expression. There's no harm in it. He might be the lowest kind of of, of scum in the city, but as far as the court case is concerned, there's no evidence or not there's not enough evidence to show this guy's really guilty here. So, but this is not that Hebrew word. In, Hebrew, in, in Deuteronomy 25, 1. They shall declare... Uh, so you, you, some of your translations justify the righteous. To justify means just as if I've never sinned. Well, no, that's not it either. Um, righteousness in the Old Testament... Let me see what the other reference is. Psalm 51, 4. I'm trying to think what that is. Um, I should know. It's, it's Yeah, oh yes. Oh good, yes. Look at Psalm 51.4. Thank you. I couldn't get it to my mind at all. Psalm 51.4. Um, uh, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight in order that you may be justified in your speech when you speak, and cleared when you uh, pass judgment. Uh, what are we declaring about God, that, that he's um, obedient to the law? When, we just, when, when psalmist wants God to be justified, is he saying God's obedient to the law? Can God be obedient to the law? No. Why? Yeah. The maker of the law can't be obedient to the law. In that sense. Right. Yes. The law is subject to him. Right. So he's not subject to the law. The law is subject to him. So what does it mean when we say, in order that you may be justified when you speak and cleared when you pass judgment? In the context, look at it. Look at the. Isn't it saying that God, he's saying you have the right to judge me for what I've done? That's right. 
That's exactly what it's saying. Uh, so, verse, you know this psalm. Gosh, it's a famous psalm. Um, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Um, Yeah, thoroughly launder me from my iniquity and from my sin. Purify me for uh, my my transgressions. I know, and my sin is constantly before me against you and you. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Mind you, in the story, not one word of reproach is ever leveled against Bathsheba. Not one word of reproach. In fact, she's rewarded because it's her son, finally, the one who survives, that becomes David's heir. So she is rewarded. Um, so David, yeah, he wronged Bathsheba. Didn't he wrong Uriah? Didn't he sin against Uriah? Yeah. But that's not what makes it so bad. He sins against God. In the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, where was David? At home, home, taking it easy. Why did Israel want a king in the first place for Samuel 8? To save them from their enemies. Yeah, to fight their battles for them. That's the first time I think I've ever gotten that answer. Thank you. Well, we've been studying 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights. Oh, okay. (laughs) At the church we attend. Okay, well, wonderful. What church? Okay. Okay. Oh, you're going. Oh, you're there yeah. with Trevor. Okay. Well, how about? No, he's at Great Commission. Oh, what? What are you at? Grace Bible. Bible. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Great Commission. All right. Um, yeah, they wanted a war leader to fight our battles for us. So the king of Israel must be a war leader. What's he doing in Jerusalem? So he's not being faithful to his calling as king. Yes, sir. So with this line of thought, did you say that Adam was not righteous in the garden? He was innocent? Innocent, but not righteous. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There are three expressions people talk about, use to talk about uh, the possibility of sin in any kind of, in any kind of being. <clears throat> one condition is not able to sin. God is not able to sin. Um, Adam in the garden was able not to sin. After the fall, humanity is not able not to sin, <laughs> except by the grace of God enabling us. Does this make sense to you? And Satan certainly is not able not to sin. So God is not able to sin. I'm sorry. uh, Adam is able not to sin. And Satan, these would be the three best examples of this, are Satan is not able not to sin. Jesus in in the incarnation as a human is able not to sin. But because he's God, he's not able to sin. So there are two <laughs> dynamics at work in his life. Uh, do you know the story of, of, of the Odyssey at all? Homer's Odyssey? Yeah, Ulysses going back to yeah. Odysseus. Going at one point, they're going to go by the um, island of the Sirens. Mm-hmm. And the Sirens sing such beautiful songs that sailors are lured to to jump into the sea and try to get to the island, but they drown in the sea. Um, Odysseus wanted to hear the siren song because it's so beautiful, but he didn't want to die, so he had his sailors lash him to the mast of the of the boat um, so that he wouldn't jump in, and he made them put beeswax in their ears so they couldn't hear the song, and they were to row past, and he would be able to hear the song. So he was able to sin but because of the mast to which he was lashed he was not able not not able to sin in that sense do you does this make sense to you right this is jesus the the humanity of jesus is lashed to the mast 
of the deity of Jesus so that as humanity, though it's able to sin, because it's lashed to the mast of the deity of Christ, he's not able to sin. So, <laughs> so, so what David is saying, folks, is God is declared to be in the right. And everybody will know it by David's own testimony in Psalm 51. Do you follow? I don't want anyone to think that whatever judgment you bring against me is in any way unjust. I want them to know that this is, by the way, a psalm of a righteous man. It's a psalm of a righteous sinner. Yes? Yes. Because his concern is not so much with his forgiveness as it is with with clearing God's reputation. In his dealing with David. So back to back to Romans. So what does it mean to justify? Justification is, is the act of declaring someone to be in the right. Now we're gonna to have to define righteousness. Let's see. What is righteousness? In a in a in an Israelite Israelite court case. The conclusion of the court might be, we saw this in Deuteronomy 25.1, yes, they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. But it might be, this would never be an option in in our court system, it might be that both are in the wrong. So how would you know that both are in the wrong? If, if the guy who did what was right could do the right in a wrong way? Yes? Right, does that make sense to you? Well, what are some of the values of Israelite law? Well, we, we only think of one real value to law, and that's obedience. I mean, what, what is law value? It, be, it, it values obedience. But there are some very high principles in the, in the Mosaic law that we don't have in our system. One of them is loyalty to the family. So... If the, if the guy who caused the harm was doing it out of loyalty to the family, he might be declared to be in the right. And if the one who did what was right did it as an act of disloyalty to the family, he might be declared in the wrong. Do you follow this? So it's possible that both parties to the suit could be declared guilty or both parties could be declared in the right. But in this case, being in the right is not, as I've, as I've defined it here, being in the right is not doing the commandment of the law per se. It's being faithful to the principle of the law, a major principle of the law that's emphasized over and over in, in the Old Testament, and that is family loyalty. The the implication of that is that righteousness in the law is not so much righteousness you get by keeping commandments, keeping rules. It is living in right relationship with someone. What God is declaring about us in justification is not that we have kept the law. It's that we are in right relationship with himself. And that, notice in verse 24, um, uh, that um, is done freely. Now the word freely is used in Galatians 2.21. You see this on the screen here. Galatians 2.21. Um, and I especially like the Second Thessalonians 3.8. But uh, Galatians 2.21, I can't remember at this point. I'm sure it's very good or I wouldn't have it listed first. Galatians 2.21. Um, uh, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for nothing. Oh, that boy, that's so good. Uh, and that will underscore, underscore what Second Thessalonians is doing here. In Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse eight, this same word is used for nothing. I I didn't eat any man's bread for nothing. What does for nothing mean? If if 
Righteousness is with the law. Christ died for nothing. No reason. No effect. In 2 Thessalonians 3, I didn't eat any man's bread for nothing. What's it mean? I ate it for a reason. I paid. Hmm? No. Pain. Without pain. I didn't just freeload off of people. I worked with my hands when I was there in Thessalonica. By the way, we don't make this connection very well. But in the New Testament's longest passage on giving, the prime example of, of New Testament giving is the Macedonian churches. Where is Thessalonica? Do you know? It's in Macedonia. How does he describe the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8? Do you remember it all? What'd you say? Faithful. No? They wasn't faithful? No. They were grindingly poor. Oh, that's right. They were poor, yeah. And yet their great poverty multiplied to the liberality of their giving. They gave as freely as they could as, as very poor people, outcasts in their own city, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1. Uh, the, so, so Paul didn't eat any man's bread without paying for it. And then finally, Galatians 2.21, um, which I've, uh, uh, well, oh no, John 15.25. John 15.25 is the other. Let's look at this. Uh, oh, I'm in Acts. Gracious. If you get it quickly. Here it is. I've got it, though. Uh, in order that the law might be fulfilled, which is written in your... Uh, in your uh, the, the word might be fulfilled, which is written in your scripture. They hated me for nothing. What does it mean they hated me for nothing? Without cause. If you were going to explain why you hate somebody and you gave the cause, what would, where would the cause be located? In them. in them. There was nothing in me that would cause such hatred, but they hated me without a cause. Let's go back to Romans 3. Let's plug these ideas in. Being justified freely. Be, being justified with no cause in myself being justified with no payment on my, on my account, being justified uh, uh, what was the other one? Um, Galatians 2.21 but that, that's the point ultimately. Yes? Does this make sense to you? There's nothing in me that causes God to declare that I am in right relationship with God. Nothing. He hasn't declared that I have kept the law because I haven't. If God declared that I have kept the law, it would be a lie. And God can't lie. God's the author of truth. So he can't declare that I have kept the law. Um, What he can declare is that I'm in right relationship with himself. So, verse 22, Romans 3.22, being justified freely by his grace. What is grace? Yes. There's a problem with that definition. Let me take you ahead and show you the problem. If if I take the definition of grace as unmerited favor, if this chart is an indication of moral quality, at the bottom of the chart is negative morality, infinite negative morality. And at the top is infinite positive morality. In the middle is moral zero. There's no morality at all. It's just, it's neither negative nor positive. Yes? Then when God forgives, all he does is he brings us up to moral zero. Is that all God does? Well, evidently not. Something else happens here. But sin leaves defilement, 
And that still causes wrath. Now, folks, we're not aware of this as much because we, we haven't studied the law of Moses and we haven't seen this. But any, act, any number of acts that you might do as an Israelite would, would be a violation of the law and entailed in that is also a defilement of your person. One, of, one such is you're walking along the road, a pathway, and unknown to you, you step on the carcass of, a, of an animal. Well, that's a violation of the law. You're not supposed to touch the carcass of a, of a wild animal. So you've, you've touched the carcass of, an, of, an, of a wild animal. That, that's certainly not immorality, but it's a violation of the law. Yes? Furthermore, it has rendered you unclean. If you were to go directly to the tabernacle or temple in that state, you would have violated the holiness of the temple by bringing what's unclean into the, into the presence of the holy. And you are liable to the death penalty for no immorality at all. Are you with me here? So I could, I could uh, deal with the fact of having t- touched a dead body but I still have to go through a purification ritual before I can go into the temple. Does this make sense to you? All right. These are strange notions to us. Yes. Uh, this isn't what we. This isn't the world we grew up with. But it's the world they grew up with. So the point is, God's got to do more than just forgive us. Forgiveness, folks, is. Uh, it, it works on two levels. It is the uh, cancellation of the penalty of the sin. What's the other level? Gracious. Oh, it can also mean the cancellation of the consequences of a sin. And not not all consequences of a sin are penalty. Okay? Yeah? Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Penalty... There's a difference between penalty and consequence. Penalty is, is the legal um, action that must be taken to rectify the relationship of the criminal to the law. So 10 years in prison, and we say, upon completing a sentence, we say that the criminal has satisfied his debt to society, paid his debt to society, yes? Um, but there are consequences. His work record for the last 10 years is zero. <laughs> so, so how do you get a job? Yes, there are consequences. Are you with me? Yes. Um, uh, all acts have consequences. If there are no consequences to acts, then there is, no res- there is no responsible action at all. Without consequences, there is no responsible action. So when I take away the consequences of people's actions, I'm taking away their responsibility and part of what it means to be human. But what God does is he does several works in dealing with us. Let's go back in our... In our uh, ideas here to this this slide grace then folks is more than just unmerited favor here is the definition I have I, I probably have it written down a little bit later grace is the favor of God shown to those who have forfeited all claim on his favor. All claim on his favor. For the sake of Jesus. So so grace is God's favor shown to those who have forfeited all claim on his favor for the sake of Jesus. So, 
Jesus has done something which enables God not only to legally and justly deal with the penalty of my sin, but also to restore me to a full relationship with himself, but it's all together, and this is why that faithfulness of Jesus in verse 22 might be important. Altogether, because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Yes, ma'am. So you're saying like forgiveness would be the moral zero, yes. and then grace takes you up. Takes us all the way up, and we'll see the means by which that happens. It looks like it's going to have to be next week. Um, so it's through the redemption that Christ paid. So redemption is the payment of the price to free a uh, um, an encumbered object. So you you uh, if if you are behind on a debt, you you pay the the arrears, and you the, the otherwise the the property is encumbered. And, and you don't have free title to it. Yes? So you pay the debt. So in redemption, Jesus pays the debt that we do, and it's in his blood. Romans uh, 51, four, uh, 14 deals with blood this way. Blood here is a reference to death. It's his death. Folks, it's the death of an infinite person. I don't know what that, just, what that means. <laughs> Jesus is not two different persons, a divine person and a human person. He's one person with two natures. And he expresses himself in both natures after the incarnation. Um, Jesus did not sit up in the manger and say, Hello, Father, uh, Mother. Uh, hello, Joseph. Can't call you, call you Father, for you. I have one Father, even God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He didn't sit up in the manger and do that. He was a true human person. And a human person, baby, newborn, in a manger, can't talk. He limited what could be revealed of his character to what could be revealed through a human nature. So as a baby in the manger, he can't talk. He can't reason. His human mind is not able to reason. The maturation, physical maturation of that human mind was not able to carry any Thing other than basic level of consciousness. Though the divine person remained all that he always has been and always will be. Does this make sense to you? In the cross, the shedding of the blood is the, is the final payment for sin. He is an infinite person. An infinite person can bear the infinite wrath of God with no passage of time. Because as an infinite person, he's outside of time. He can bear the wrath of God without reference to time. And so he bears the fullness of the wrath of God against sin, which is now available to us. But redemption brings about forgiveness. That only gets us up to moral zero. And that's what we'll be addressing next week as we come back. We have, uh, this is the 10th, uh, 17th. So next week is our last week before Christmas. So I'll see you then. Let's close with prayer. Once more, Father, we intercede for the Santiago family and ask your mercy upon them. In in now this niece's life, we ask you to do your marvelous work. Um, Help the family bear the burden. It is good to know that you know what it costs to lose a child. I'm, I'm so encouraged by that. Um, to know that you had to turn your... I don't know what I'm even saying, Father. You do. I don't. So in my little baby language, I'm just babbling out to you. You turned your back on Jesus. I don't know what that means. But he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. You know what it cost you, and you know what it cost him. Mm-hmm. So you know what the burden is the Santiago family is bearing. Uh, so in your mercy sustain them and give them give them peace uh, and if you would father if it if it will serve your purpose to heal her immediately and completely please do it we always want that we never want the suffering we always want the quick solution 
but whatever your will, Father, sustain. Now we thank you for your word, and, and we're trying to understand what Jesus has accomplished for us. Help us as we try to filter into our brains the reality that we're righteous without works, and we're righteous altogether on the basis of what Jesus has done. For Jesus' sake we pray.